You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You did this, right? And dance around <laughs> like you were in the uh, uh, Let's Get Physical video. <laughs> Today on From A to Ziggy, Battle for Britain, parentheses, the letter. Welcome to From A to Ziggy, the podcast where we listen to every David Bowie song in alphabetical order. My name is Travis. My name is Thomas. And today we are talking about Battle for Britain, parentheses, the letter. From 1997's Earthling. Album. 90s industrial metal Bowie. Yeah. Well, not even I guess really. maybe not metal, but. It's more like drum and bass jungle, kind of. But also not really. It's like that electronica rock that was kind of gaining momentum in 1997. Um, yeah, very timely yeah. album. Very timely. Um, and even, we're going to dive right in. He even references in, uh, in some interviews around that time that he was really into the prodigy at the time, which for people of a certain age, remember them from the radio and they had Firestarter and what was the other song? Breathe Sna- the pressure. Pressure. That's the song I was trying to think of. That video. They were a scary looking bunch of dudes, man. Yeah. That video freaked me out when I was 14. And then uh, Smack My Bitch Up actually ended up becoming the most popular song, oddly enough. I thought. Really? Usually, I feel like in conversation, if I ever mentioned The Prodigy, which is a thing that happens more than none, which is bizarre. It, I think it got more popular because of the video, which yeah. had naked ladies in it. It was a lot of controversy. Yeah. They could only show it on MTV like after midnight. Which they wouldn't have shown it on MTV, except, I don't know, they got some special dispensation because of artistic value or, you know, maybe crumbling moral fiber. Yeah, I or mean, it, something, one of those it was something in between, probably, because uh, it really, that was, I think that perfectly encapsulates the time. Yeah. I feel like that kind of, the, the video was, I mean, it's relatively tame. Yeah. It's just a fun, rollicking, violent video. But uh, in retrospect, the whole controversy about the Prodigy video, welcome to the Prodigy Minute, (laughs) is kind of ridiculous. Because the content of that video is not something that would have been unusual on British TV. No. It's just the Americans that have the Puritans that we are. Dicks up their butts. Yeah. And now we sit there and complain about the decay of society, even though we're kids, we're pining for the Smack My Bitch Up video. Yeah. Well, I don't complain about the decline of society. I embrace it and hope that it declines even further. I give it the eye rolls a lot when I'm listening to like modern pop music. Kids these days, garbage feel, they listen to. I feel like that's something different. That's like the, uh, the banality of uh, youth. Whereas you and I, we come from it from a different perspective. It's different because uh, that was our experience. Yeah. Uh, maybe it is the same thing, actually. It's just, it's a big cycle. These kids are going to grow up and be like, oh, these kids these days, they don't know the real music. They didn't listen to One Direction. And this song is basically kind of a tribute to his, his heritage from Britain, despite leaving there in 74 and never really looking back. Never recorded there, never lived there. Became more of a New Yorker than a Brit. So, so but at this point, he hadn't lived on the other side of the pond in 2013. Three years? Yeah, this came out in 97. So I guess was this was recorded in 96, so like 21 years. 22, 22 years. 22 years, yeah. 22 or got 23 l- years. No, got lost in my in my tired brain. Yeah, so it had been about 22 years, and he had lived in Germany. He would lived in New York. Mystique. All France, over the place. He's London, more of a... France. <laughs> lived in his underpants. <laughs> he, he saw all the underpants. Nobody saw more underpants than David Bowie. So he was, you know, he was a citizen of the world. 
But absence always makes the heart grow fonder, and you eventually start looking back to your roots. So the longer you're away from somewhere, the more rose-colored your view of it becomes, and the more you kind of pine for it. And, you know, and I think something that kind of drudged it up, um, and he kind of alludes to it in one of the interviews from around that time, where he makes mention of a lot of the bands that were starting to emerge and how Britain was kind of becoming this hotbed for rock and roll again around the, the 90s, like when Oasis was getting big and Blur and bands like that. And I think he was kind of starting to see kind of a product of what he had helped create in the area. I mean, these are all, you know, the kids that grew up listening to you are starting to start bands and kind of draw off that. So I, th- I bet that kind of made him start feeling a little, a little bit more wistful, kind of accelerated the process. One thing that, uh, that comes up in this song, a very British aspect of the song is the Cockney accent yeah. that adopts. What else? What are some other lyrics from this song? The lyrics are pretty obscure. They're kind of abstract, but the theme there seems to be kind of like connecting to another person, be it your compatriot or something like that. I'm not sure. Uh, but connecting with a person and, you know, going through something together. So now this is the first song we've done off the Earthling album. Mm-hmm. So this is another album that he did with Reeves Gabrels mm-hmm. from, from Tin Machine. Reeves Gabrels on guitar. He's credited with programming, with synthesizers, with real and sampled guitar. Yes. And it is a, it's a pretty neat process. I, I was reading about how they did a lot of it with uh, playing these riffs, sampling them onto a synthesizer and just kind of cutting and dicing. and. Yeah, like you can find presets for guitar yeah. and just play it on the keyboard. But this was actually played. This was done very. And then manipulated in yeah. the synthesizer. It, it does make for a neat sound. It, 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 it gives it a different tone when, yeah. you, when you record it and then change the pitch. So it, it just changes all the harmonics because you're sort of replaying it at a different speed, kind of like taking a tape and speeding it up or slowing it down. And so you don't have the different harmonics of the string operating differently or like resonating at different modes because of the physical properties of the string. It's, it's just yeah, all it's changed. Much it's more sliding up the spectrum. Like a lot more sterile. Yeah. But heavy, very heavy. And I think that's why when I started to kind of change my tone when I came to David Bowie, when I saw him on SNL and he had done I'm Afraid of Americans and I can't remember what else. But that was like my first real dose of like super heavy Bowie. And I was like, oh, okay, I can get into it. Because my real exposure at that point was mostly like his 80s stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was an angsty grunge teenager, so I had no use for that 80s dance stuff. Well, hardly anybody did yeah. the, at the time this at album time, came yeah. out. It was hard for people to take this album seriously, myself included. Like, here's Bowie, and he's doing... He's got this song, I'm Afraid of Americans, which, come, you know, the single comes out later. Trent Reznor does the remix later, and then it gets all it gets popular with uh, the Nine Inch Nails fans, which is kind of how I came into it. But if you saw the video for I'm Afraid of Americans and bought this album, which has the album version on it and no Trent Reznor connection, you were in for a pretty unpleasant surprise because it's very different from what that single might have looked like. I think I actually only know the Trent Reznor version. This is the first David Bowie album, if you don't count Buddha of Suburbia, which has a still from the movie. This is the first David Bowie album that doesn't have his face featured on the front cover. That's Most of them fact. have his face yeah. pretty prominently featured because David Bowie is David Bowie's image. David Bowie's image is David Bowie. So this one doesn't have his trademark face on it. And of course, now with the reissue of Buddha, Buddha of Suburbia, 
It's really, it really is the first one. And there's one other one, which is The Next Day. No, there's two other ones now. Now The Next Day and Black Star. His final two albums don't have his face actually on the cover. But this was the first one, the earliest one. And this was, this was a record that didn't really get taken seriously, like I said. It was very hard for people to accept. This is like David Bowie's doing a dance album. And we all know dance is just the modern version of disco, and this is all going to go away pretty soon. And the question now is, does this album hold up? Does this song hold up? The whole album is very aggressive, very loud, a lot of bass. Yeah. Tremendous bass on this song. And then a lot of aggressive guitar stabs, sampled guitar, a lot of synthesizers, and a lot of stuff going on. I don't know. What do you think? Does the sound hold up? I mean, I personally think it does. Um, or does it put itself in 1997 firmly? And, and I think that's why it holds up to me. Not extractively. Because it's definitely, if you speak to anyone that's around our age who grew up, you know, who was hitting their teenage years in 96, 97... And I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to be a spokesman for my generation and say... Talk about your generation. I'm going to talk about my generation. And I'm going to say that it does hold up because I feel like it doesn't sound schlocky or anything like that. It's still heavy. It still punches hard. But at the same time, you can sit and listen to it and be like, oh, this is when electronic rock was popular. Yeah. But I think it's the sound that holds up. Like, it, I don't think it sounds cheesy. I think it maybe sounds less cheesy now than it did then. It's a lot easier for me to listen to this album now. But then I've listened to it however many dozens of times by now. Well, in retrospect, it feels like a natural progression. Because he is kind of, he's, he's the rock and roll time traveler, basically, where he's just adapting to the time. And in retrospect, it, this does fit perfectly into that reputation as being this musical time traveler, where, of course, he would reemerge in 1997 with a soul patch and play industrial rock. But at the time, yeah, it probably did feel to people who were with him for a while like, David Bowie, you're dance pop and glam rock. Why are you trying to be playing metal? You look silly. And again, it wasn't, it wasn't really metal. It was like it was like prodigy type stuff. Yeah, I, I do tend to miscategorize a lot of that stuff as being a form of metal. <clears throat> in one of these interviews from that time, I don't know if this is the one... The, the quote we were looking for earlier was that it's uh, Bowie's describing the ambiguity of his national identity. Is he American or is he British? He says it's another cut-up, he explained. So, like, the way he composes, the way he writes lyrics is, is similar to William S. Burroughs' cut-up method, where, you know, you take phrases, write something down, and then cut it up, physically cut up the paper and rearrange it. And so he does this with phrases and with lines, and he'll have, you know, a few things going on at a time, but he'll kind of interlace the phrases that have to do with each other and spread them out throughout the track. So you have a few different themes going on throughout the song, but it's up to you to piece them together as you're listening to them. And, you know, there's a little bit of room for interpretation once you put it together in your mind. So there's a few different things going on here, and one of them is this ambiguity of nationhood. And he said it's another cut-up, but it probably comes from a sense of, quote, am I or am I not British? which is an inner war, he says, rages in most expatriates. I've not lived in Britain since 1974, but I love the place and I keep going back. That's kind of where he's coming from with this. And then in another interview from this same period, he it ends with the interviewer leaving the tour bus. Everyone got off but Bowie and Reeves Gabrels, who stayed on, cranked up a prodigy CD, pulled the curtains, and locked the doors. <laughs> Good old prodigy. Good old prodigy. And so that was the sound they were going with 
uh, while recording this album is they were listening to a lot of Prodigy, a lot of Tricky, a lot of, uh, what else, Goldie, Guy Called Gerald, all those kinds of things, the British kind of rocky electronic acts, the punk kind of electronic acts. If that was the kind of sound that kind of stuck around, I probably would have a lot more patience for electronic music. But there's definitely a place for dance music that has like its roots in actual physically played music. And that's the thing about this album, too, is there's a lot of synthesizers, a lot of samplers, but then there's a lot of stuff that's done on real instruments. And one of the most remarkable things, two of the most remarkable things on this album, on this song, are Zachary Alford's drumming. Mm -hmm. So the real acoustic drums that are accompanied by the sort of sped up jungle drum pattern. And Mike Garson's piano solo. So let's talk about Mike Garson. Yeah, that is, that is probably one of the most interesting parts of the song right there. You mentioned that this is that this song holds up. And I think so too. It's it also happens to be I think the only song from Earthling maybe I'm afraid of Americans did too. But one of few songs from Earthling that stayed within the repertoire as Bowie kept touring. So, uh you can hear a lot of live versions of this one. Um and I think I think it has to do a lot with the the way that real instruments are used in this in this song. So Mike Garson's piano solo being one of them and one of the most notable. So this solo is great. Yes. And it 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 kind of came about in a very similar way as in the piano solo for Aladdin Sane, where David Bowie just kind of gave him an abstract do yeah. this thing. Yeah, yeah. And so he, he told him, he wanted him to kind of replicate the sound of a Stravinsky piece. What a wind octet. Which, of course, wind instruments are a little bit different from a piano. Just, just a little bit. <laughs> they have a different sound to them. But, <laughs> you, but you can translate it to a piano. But Yeah, notes are notes are notes. But yeah, it definitely but it's not meant. But this is not a piano version of a wind composition. And this is kind of different. But it's got a very sort of punctuated sound to it. It feels both completely out of place, but right in the right place simultaneously. Yeah. Again, just like, just like Aladdin saying. Yeah. So it's underlined by this whole stabby guitar that goes throughout the whole song. The, the sort of chugging yeah. sound. It's this kind of like semi-beautiful moment in the middle of a very just dirty song. Um, and it's got this like great, great twinkling sort of, sort of quality to it. And it's all over the keyboard in that great Mike Garson style. And then the whole, the, the interplay with the, with the real drums and the drum machines. That's, that's another one of those like music pleasures that I do enjoy. Cause I yeah. try to avoid music with too many drum machines. Like I'm a, I am a sucker for real, just analog instruments, but I can, you know, but I listen to enough stuff with drum machines in it that like, I can't say I hate it completely. And to be able to keep up with the, uh, in this song at least, to keep up with the kind of like breakneck pace of that drum machine. Yeah, so the piano kind of aligns with the regular measures of the drum machine. And then Zach Alford comes in, in the middle of it, and not only do the two instruments fit together, uh, Zach Alford's fills come in perfectly timed with the spaces that Mike Garson leaves open yeah. for them. And then they finally, they alternate like that for a while. And then at the end, at the climax, they finally come together, the, both of them doing this dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, and then back into the... Yeah. And then actually not back into the song, there's a little break that sort of uh, 
is was put together by Mark Platy, the uh, producer. It kind of is meant to simulate the skipping of uh, a CD. You know, when a CD is scratched, it kind of the laser zips back and forth and kind of repeats segments of the song. It does that. It's got this little glitchy moment, and then back into the song. That's probably the most remarkable element of this song. Yeah, is really the the piano. That's 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 the thing that kind of st- makes this song stick out for me among the rest of the songs on this album. So this album has some pretty interesting art. There's this sort of zodiac wheel, and each song has its own kind of icon associated with it. So Battle for Britain, the icon, and we'll do this for all of the songs that we encounter in this on this album, but the icon for Battle for Britain, open parenthesis, the letter, close parenthesis, is this image from inside the liner notes of uh, some mannequins suspended between two cubes. The bottom cube has a cross, a kind of crucifix, and the top cube has something circular. I can't really make out what it is, but if it's like the rest of the images from the album, it's either a sun or an eyeball. It's a circle, some kind of circle. And anyway, these mannequins seem to be kind of traveling. There's three of them like traveling in between the two. It's unclear which direction they're traveling because they're just sort of suspended there. It's odd. Kind of reminds me of uh, that David Lynch movie, uh, Industrial Symphony Number no. 1, which if you haven't seen it, you should check it out. It might be on YouTube. We might link to it on <laughs> the Facebook page. Uh, but the other uh, really interesting imagery from the Earthling uh, liner notes is there's a kind of a circle and a cross. It's hard to just, it kind of looks, it kind of looks like the symbol, the female symbol, right? Except it's turned or yeah. oriented the, a different way. It's kind of oriented the way that uh, you would orient the male symbol with the arrow, um, except the cross is facing northeast instead of south. And what, what this image is, is it's something called a Kirlian photograph. And it's a, picture, a photo that David Bowie took in 1974. And what a Kirlian photograph is, is a photograph of electrical discharge from objects. You charge them with an electric field and then you somehow record the discharge of electricity from the object uh, onto film. And this is what people did. So scientists use this, you know, for legitimate purposes, but also people use this technique for photographing auras. So allegedly, this electrical discharge that you record has something to do with your aura, which is the energy field that surrounds people and things, and it has some mystical significance. So Bowie did this experiment in 74. He took a photograph before doing coke and then a photograph 30 minutes later. And in one, there's, you can see sort of swirls and tendrils and stellations from coming out from the object. Uh, one is the, his cross pendant. That's the cross in the image. And then the circle is his fingertip sort of laid down on the plate, the metal plate. So he takes a picture. And then he takes a picture half an hour later while he's on high on coke and the after image is much more blown out it looks like an overexposed image there's just more aura radiating out from his fingertip and from the cross um allegedly this is his aura being strengthened by the vig- invigorating power of <laughs> yes. 
The drug. The magic of cocaine. <laughs> so a skeptic might say that, uh, you know, when you're, when you're taking these photographs, when you're replicating experiments, you have to control the variables, the different parameters, uh, and keep them constant between the two instances or the two experiments. And it might be kind of, that might be a difficult thing to do while you're high on cocaine. Yeah, um, I would imagine. <laughs> but it could be a picture of his aura also. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just a little interesting tidbit. It's, and it's a cool image. It, I think it's there because it's got a lot of symbolic connections with the male-female kind of thing, duality. <laughs> and then uh, there's also circles and crosses in the image for this song, like we said, like the mannequins traversing the space yeah. from cross to circle. I don't know. Anyway, that's, that's all I wanted to point out for the art direction for this album. So anything more about Earthling or Battle for Britain? Ah, I think we covered it. Ratings. Rate it, yeah. Uh, what did you think of uh, Battle for Britain, the letter? I, I really liked it. I, yeah, I really I have such a warmth for music of that era. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give this song three and a half. Oh, don't try to find the lyrics in the uh, liner notes. Yeah. They're impossible to read. Give this three and a half other pairs of pants. Yeah, I I really like this song too. It it like I said, it stands out among all the songs on this album. So I I'd, I'd actually give it four other pairs of pants. Quite fond of it. Yeah, it's kind of really, it's heavy and aggressive, but also very catchy. The chorus is very, very catchy. Which is odd for such a weird and aggressive song. Yeah. But again, there's a lot of there's a lot of melody to the songs on this album and a lot of especially to the lyrics, to the to the vocals, just the the kinds of things you don't expect really from a an electronic album. And that's what kind of what sets this this apart from Things like the Prodigy, the Chemical Brothers, and things like that. Yeah, um, it's got that Bowie touch, that Bowie fingertip aura to it. Covers, covers. I've found a couple. Uh, Mike Garson has an album called The Bowie Variations, where he does solo piano versions of a lot of David Bowie songs, and he does one that's a medley of. Battle for Britain, and segues into The Loneliest Guy from Reality and Bring Me the Disco King, also from Reality. And so the Battle for Britain segment is basically just the piano solo. Solo. He just kind of plays it just like it does on the album, without any of the other accompaniment, which is fun to hear on its own. Yeah. Because like I said, yeah. that's, it's one of the best parts of the song. And then another cover by the Wee Trio. Did we do these guys previously did, did, did they come so. up on so they do a cover of ashes to ashes which we neglected to mention i neglected to find them in time but they did an album of bowie covers in 2012 called ashes to ashes a david bowie introspective and uh they lead it off with a cover of battle to britain and this is a kind of jazz you'd think they were a trio but the cover has six people on it so they might it might be a duo d double trio one of those bands that uses a number that's not really accurate, like Ben Folds Five. Which is odd, too, because he's not folding anything. He's not folding anything. He's not There's folding not five, five of, of anything. Them. But uh, the We Trio, they, they kind of remind me of uh, the Bad Plus, where that's a jazz trio. A lot of numbers involved in this. But so anyway, they do like jazz versions with you know upright bass and drums, whatever other instruments. But then what, what's featured... 
the kind of odd instrument that's featured in this one is uh, in this band is um, a melodic percussion instrument. It's like a xylophone or a castanet. Is that one? Yeah. No, that's a that's a shake. Oh, that's the uh, yeah. Cali- no, not calliope. That's the that's the, <laughs> the circus organ. Yeah. There's one that starts with a C, right? Anyway, they do the melodic percussion thing with the mallets and the thing. Uh, and so they do a version of Battle for Britain as well, which is cool. It's worth checking out. Those were the two I found. Um, but th- yeah, definitely check out Mike Garson's solo version of his piano solo. Yeah. And there are some. Re- there are a couple really good live videos oh, for yeah. this song worth checking out. I found the one from his 50th birthday bash, um, and then there was another one from the reality tour. I personally like the, the earlier one a little bit better. I'll have to check that one out. I haven't uh, seen it. Um, anything else to say about uh, yeah. Battle for Britain, Earthling? Uh, well, <laughs> thank you for joining me on, uh, on, on this episode. Thank you for being my podcasting partner. But uh, in a couple of days, will you come back and be my wife? <laughs> it is Massachusetts. <laughs> Thank you for rolling with that one. <laughs> Maybe there's a different in, uh, segue. Uh, <laughs> no, we, or we should go with that. Let's go with yeah. that. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Wednesday we'll be talking about Be My Wife. Uh, until then, check us out on Facebook and Twitter, From A to Ziggy. From A to Ziggy.com, you can leave a comment on the page for this episode. What did you think of Battle for Britain, the letter? Have you ever taken a Kirlian photograph of your aura? Send us an email, podcast at formatoziggy.com. Want to be a guest on your favorite uh, David Bowie podcast that discusses all of his songs in alphabetical order from A to Z? Email us, podcast at formatoziggy.com. Oh, please also leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Until Wednesday, my name is Thomas. And I am Travis. And we uh, will, yeah, we will be back. Don't, don't be so forlorn. Don't let our letter get you down. It's just a payoff. It's the rain before the storm. Just sing the song. So do you identify now more as like a Northeasterner or from or a Southerner? You know, it's funny. <clears throat> I think of myself as a man without a country. Ah. That's not really that funny. <laughs> <laughs>